0: Welcome to A Breath of Fresh Earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Since the focus of this episode is going to be water, we're going to do a quick summary of the water cycle. So where does all the Earth's water come from? Primordial Earth was an incandescent globe made of magma, but all magmas contain water. Volcanic activity kept and still does keep introducing water into the atmosphere, thus increasing the surface and groundwater volume of the Earth. Now the sun heats up the water in the oceans, we all know that. Some of it evaporates as vapor into the air. Rising currents take the vapor up into the atmosphere along with water from evapotranspiration. There's the word for today, which is water transpired from plants and evaporated from the soil. The vapor rises into the air where cooler temperatures cause it to condense into clouds. Air currents move the clouds around the globe. Cloud particles collide, they grow, they fall out of the sky as rain. Some precipitation falls as snow and can accumulate as ice caps and glaciers. They store frozen water for thousands of years. These snowpacks in warmer climates sometimes thaw and melt when spring arrives. The melted water flows over the land as snow belt. Most precipitation falls into the oceans or onto land. Much of it soaks into the ground. Some of that seeps deep into the ground and replenishes aquifers, which stored huge amounts of fresh water for long periods of time. Over time, all this water keeps moving, re-enters the ocean, and the cycle starts all over again. Water is the primary medium through which we will feel the effects of climate change. So we need to make water protection an important part of our global climate strategy. We're disrupting the natural water cycle, creating more erratic rainfall from floods and droughts, long-term reducing the replenishment rates of glaciers, rivers, and dams. There'll be a lot to learn on this episode. The Great Barrier Reef is one of the world's natural wonders. It's among Australia's most beloved tourist landmarks. But recent mass bleachings of coral and other problems have accelerated its deterioration. Here's a quick lesson as to why the Great Barrier Reef is in trouble. UNESCO, United Nations Scientific and Cultural Body, contemplated placing the Great Barrier Reef on the endangered list. An endangered designation means a site is under threat, and if action isn't taken to address concerns, it could lose its World Heritage status an endanger listing of a World Heritage property recognizes a decline in the outstanding universal value that makes the site internationally significant. Losing that status could cost Australia billions of dollars in tourism. I've never said to my wife, wouldn't it be neat to go to Australia and see where the Great Barrier Reef used to be? No one's going to say that in the future. The committee includes 21 countries requested that Australia send a report on the state of conservation of the reef by February of next year. The report should outline the protection measures implemented to preserve the outstanding universal value of the reef. Stretching over 1,400 miles, the Great Barrier Reef is actually made up of about 3,000 individual reefs. It's one of the most biodiverse ecosystems in the world. It's home to over 400 different types of coral and 1,500 species of fish and and endangered creatures like the large green turtle. Global warming has already led to the reef losing half its coral since 1995. And in the past five years, the reef has suffered three mass bleaching events. So what is mass bleaching? This is when understressed corals expel the algae living within them. That gives them their color and life. The corals turn white, a process known as bleaching. If cooler waters return, it's possible for the reefs to make a big comeback. Recovery is going to take at least 10 or 15 years. Scientists warn the Great Barrier Reef is on the brink of breaking down. And in 2019, Australia downgraded the reef's long-term outlook to very poor. Experts warn the only way to save the reef is by urgently cutting greenhouse gas emissions. For years, the Great Salt Lake in Utah has been shrinking, and a drought in the American West could make this year the worst yet. The receding water is already affecting the nesting spot of pelicans that are among the millions of birds dependent on the lake. Sailboats have been hoisted out of the water to keep them from getting stuck in the mud. More dry lake bed is getting exposed, and that could send arsenic-laced dust into the air that millions of people breathe. The lake's levels are expected to hit a 170-year low this year. For years, people have been diverting water from rivers that flow into the lake to water crops and supply the water for their homes. Because the lake is shallow, only about 35 feet at its steepest point, less water quickly translates to receding shorelines. The waves have been replaced by dry, gravelly lakebed that's grown up to 650 square miles. Utah is one of the driest states in the country, and most of its water comes from snowfall. The snowpack was below normal last year, and the soil was dry, meaning much of the melted snow that flowed down the mountains soaked right into the ground. Most years, the Great Salt Lake gains up to two feet from the spring runoff. This year, six inches. Brine shrimp support a $57 million fish food industry in Utah. I never knew that. But in the coming years, less water could make the salinity too great for even those tiny little creatures. Officials believe the Great Salt Lake will likely lose two more feet of depth by October this year. What makes the situation worse is the saltiness. The water is leaving the lake's boundaries, but the salt is not, increasing the salinity of the remaining lake. And as it gets saltier, that's why it's called the Great Salt Lake, it's going to affect the local ecosystem, especially the brine shrimp. If I said to you, I don't care about brine shrimp, I don't even like seafood, you might say, that's okay. I mean, I don't like shrimp either. There's one store about five minutes from my house that sells shrimp either with the heads on or the heads off. Gross. But today it's the shrimp. Tomorrow it might be your favorite food. You know how I often say it's all connected. Well, this is another perfect example of what I'm talking about. And since we're talking about lakes, let's talk about Lake Mead. It reached its lowest level on record. Lake Mead is the reservoir formed by the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River in southern Nevada. It's the least amount of water present in the lake since the 1930s. They're calling it a mega drought, and the western United States is in trouble. Water levels in the lake have been in steady decline since the early 2000s. They improved a little bit in 2012 before falling down again. Now water levels are more than 140 feet below what the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation defines as full. The water in Lake Mead is used to generate electricity and supply water demand in the area, including farms and communities, and Las Vegas. Las Vegas receives roughly 90% of its drinking water from the lake. The drought has been made worse by temperatures intensified by human-induced climate change. Sorry, Republicans, but it's true. continues to bake the region every summer. Hotter temperatures lead to greater direct evaporation and evapotranspiration, or evaporation from plants, that dries out landscape, and leaves it susceptible for wildfire growth during autumn. The drier landscape also favor higher temperatures, which in turn reinforces the drought in a vicious self-perpetuating process, a nasty game of catch-22. People used to say, "Let's wait to take action on climate change until it hits us in the United States." Oops, sorry folks, it's been here the entire time. People like Bill McKibben and James Hansen have been warning us about it for 20 years. We just didn't pay attention. <laughs> A prolonged drought worsened by climate change and government mismanagement has added a volatile new challenge in Iran, ranging from the pandemic to U.S. sanctions. For the past week, demonstrators have surged into the streets of kuzakhstan province in Iran because of water shortages. Iran is struggling with a prolonged drought and rising temperatures from climate change. Protesters are complaining about decades of government mismanagement of natural resources and lack of planning. The people are sick of it and they've turned to the streets in protest. This is not the first or the last you're going to see of mass protests of people demanding water. What's unusual about this one is that the rest of the world usually doesn't get to hear about internal problems in Iran. Kazakhstan is home to an ethnic Arab population that has historically faced discrimination that includes a separatist movement. One citizen said, We keep shouting, We want water, just water. We don't have water. And they responded with violence and bullets. Large crowds were shouting, I am thirsty. They've demanded immediate relief and resignations from local officials. Some protesters have denounced top officials in Tehran, including Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader. Mr. Khamenei commented on them publicly for the first time a couple of weeks ago, saying on his Instagram channel, officials are obligated to address Kazakhstan's problem. That's amazing, because usually they wouldn't acknowledge any problem anywhere in the country. The energy minister warned in May that Iran was facing the driest summer in 50 years when the temperatures were approaching 50 degrees Celsius. It's about 122 Fahrenheit. That would lead to cuts in electrical power and shortages of water. Iran's meteorologists warned in June that southern and western areas had suffered a 50 to 85 percent reduction in precipitation and a temperature increase of 2 or 3 degrees Celsius. This is all due to water shortages, which is in part due to climate change. This is just one more example of what would be the ultimate dystopian movie imitating real life. Imagine if you went to turn on the water from your tap and nothing came out. I'd probably freak out. And in nearby Lebanon, over the weekend, UNICEF warned that with the failure of the Lebanese power grid, the country's water supply could collapse within a month. UNICEF estimates that most water pumping will gradually cease or across the country in the next four to six weeks. Four million people, including one million refugees, are at immediate risk of losing access to safe water. In this new world affected by climate change, we see droughts, we also see floods. In Europe, on beginning on july thirteenth, intense storms dropped as much as fifteen centimeters of rain in 24 hours, swelling streams, That washed away houses and cars and triggered massive landslides. At least 196 people died, 165 in Germany, and 31 in Belgium. If you want to see the videos, it's terrifying. You can go to YouTube and see all different kinds of homemade films. For years, scientists have warned climate change will mean more flooding in Europe and elsewhere. There are two main links between climate change and extreme rainfall events like the one in Northwest Europe. First, a warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. According to the Clausius-Clapeyron equation, sure I said that wrong, one degree rise in temperature has the potential to give a 7% increase in the intensity of rainfall. The second point is that the Earth's poles are increasing in temperature at two to three times the rate of the equator. That weakens the jet stream of the mid-latitudes, which basically means that's over Europe. In summer and autumn, the weakening of the jet stream has a knock-on effect causing slower-moving storms, So there's that double whammy of increasing intensity, but the storm lingers longer, too. And we haven't even talked about the floods and the deaths in China. It's really too much for one show. I was horrified to see cell phone videos of people standing neck deep in city trains waiting to be saved. And I'm way too much, and I'm way too claustrophobic for that. I wouldn't have been there to be saved, I would have had a heart attack right there on the train, drowned in the water. The funeral is about to begin. Okay, we really need to lighten up this episode. Oh my gosh. Who wants to witness an orgy next spring? See, I told you we'd lighten it up. That could be fun, especially if you like to do it with the lights on. What kind of environmental show is this? I'm talking about the light of synchronous fireflies. We've all seen fireflies in our backyard, but you need to head to the Great Smoky Mountains next spring. You'll really get an eyeful from the synchronous fireflies and see the Great Firefly Fornication event. I'm making up that last part, but you can imagine thousands and thousands of fireflies trying to swipe right and get the hookup. Who knew you could have so much fun in the Smoky Mountains? I mean, I heard it's beautiful there, but I've never been there. Now I have a great reason to go. Many years ago, my wife and I were driving during a typical time for fireflies to be seen. We drove through at least a million of them. They smashed against our windshield. What a mess. That was weird. And it was like in a Star Wars movie when the ship turns on the special accelerator and the ship goes like a million miles an hour. I guess it goes faster than that, but you understand. Now imagine that happening while you're driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It's very cool. Never forget that. Fireflies, also we used to call them lightning bugs when we were kids, really they're beetles. Most of their life cycle is spent in the larval stage for like one or two years. They feed on snails, worms, and smaller insects in the leaf litter on the forest floor. Once they mature into adult form, they only live for about three or four weeks, and many of them don't even eat. I guess if you know you're only going to be alive for three or four weeks and all you want to do is have sex, you don't have time to eat. Firefly flash patterns are part of the mating display. Each species has a characteristic pattern that helps male and female individuals recognize and find each other. Most species produce a greenish-yellow light. Those are the ones I've seen. But others have more of a blue or white light. Males typically flash while they're flying and females usually stationary when they respond. So when you see a male flashing his light, it's like he's saying, do you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain or making love at midnight? The production of light by living organisms is called bioluminescence. Bioluminescence involves highly efficient chemical reactions that result in the release of light with little or no emission of heat. Synchronous fireflies are one of at least 19 species of fireflies that live in the Great Smoky Mountains. They're the only one of a couple species in North America whose individuals are known to synchronize their flashing light patterns. Now that sounds cool. Scientists have determined that the males flash in unison as a way for the females to be certain she's responding to one of her kind. There are other firefly species flashing at night. Some of them could be predators. So she's got to be careful. The flash pattern is a series of five to eight flashes, followed by a pause of about eight seconds, and then the pattern is repeated. Initially, the flashing appears random, but the period of darkness is synchronized. As more males start joining in, the flashing also begins to synchronize and the entire section of the forest is pulsating with light. How cool would that be to see? How can a female choose from so many lights to pick from? Who's the lucky guy? The mating season of this specific species of fireflies lasts for approximately two to three weeks each year. Good Lord, they must be exhausted. The dates that they begin to display varies from year to year based on the temperature and the soil moisture. As the season begins, a few insects start flashing, then more, more join the party. They reach a peak, and then the numbers gradually decline until the mating season is over. Since 1993, which is when the dates were first recorded, this peak date has occurred at various times from the third week of May to the third week of June. Now, for all you male fireflies that are listening, I have it on good authority that the size of your light doesn't matter. Size does not matter. All right, more good news. Now we're going to turn to plasticoceans.org and the Seas and Trees Festival that runs from August 2nd through August 8th. So this is perfect timing. This year, the festival is brought to us by the amazing folks at plasticoceans.org. It's being held in Southern Chile, but you can find events around the world. The goal of the event held annually is to build a bridge between ocean and forest conservation. During this time, 50,000 trees are going to be planted, and there'll be more than 100 beach and forest cleanups. There's workshops, online panel discussions, music, art, movies from seven different countries. You know I love movies. I've got my eye on a few. Most of them are less than 10 minutes long, so I'm not asking you to tie up your entire week watching two-hour documentaries about plastic in the ocean. There's one movie that looks kind of cute. It's a short film for kids called Earth's Echo. It's E-K-K-O. I do not see any dinosaur movies on the slate, but that's okay. I can always go back and watch Jurassic Park for the 201st time when the festival is over. So when you're flicking through your streaming channels and you're wondering, what the heck are you doing wasting time? Or you go down the YouTube rabbit hole and all of a sudden you're watching something from 1912. Head to the festival's website and find something that strikes your interest. And the best part, the entire event is 100% free. Yes, free! So check it out at plasticoceans.org and follow the link to the festival. This episode really needed more good news. I feel so much better now. We are celebrating a special day for a very special man. Happy birthday! And lastly, today we celebrate the birthday of Lonnie Thompson, born in July back in 1948. Thompson is an American paleoclimatologist and Distinguished University Professor in the School of Earth Sciences at The Ohio State University. He's famous for his drilling and analysis of ice cores from ice caps and mountain glaciers in the tropical and subtropical regions of the world. He and his wife, Ellen Mosley Thompson, run the Ice Core Paleoclimatology Research Group at the Byrd Polar Research Center. Thompson has led 60 expeditions over the last 40 years where they conducted ice drilling programs. He's drilled in the polar regions as well as China, Peru, Russia, Tanzania, and Papua New Guinea. The results of these paleoclimate histories were published in more than 230 articles and have contributed towards improved understanding of Earth's climate system, both past and present. You know how I love to brag about scientists and how they've won awards, and Thompson has a bunch of them. So here's just a partial list. In 2001, he was featured among 18 scientists and researchers as America's Best by CNN and Time Magazine. In 2005, he was elected to the National Academy of Science. That same year, he was awarded the prestigious Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement. And that's a biggie. That's an honor often regarded as the environmental science equivalent to the Nobel Prize. In 2007, he received the National Medal of Science. This is the highest honor the United States can bestow upon an American scientist. I mean, that's like the Hall of Fame. That same year, he was awarded the Seligman Crystal by the International Glaciological Society the crystal is considered to be one of the highest awards in glaciology. In 2008, Mosley Thompson and Lonnie Thompson shared the $1 million Dan David prize. One million bucks. Not bad, Lonnie. Buy your wife something nice. In 2008, Thompson was listed as one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Environment. That gets me right in the heart. I love that award. He and his wife were jointly awarded the Benjamin Franklin Medal in Earth and Environmental Science from the Franklin Institute in 2012. Thompson and his wife both served as advisors for the Academy Award-winning 2006 documentary An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore Jr. Some of their work was referenced in the movie. In 2017, I went to Pittsburgh and was trained by Al Gore along with many other people. That's one of the reasons why I'm doing this show, from the inspiration I received at that training seminar. And with that long list of awards, we end this episode. Thanks for listening. If you have a suggestion for the show, please email me at rf at richardfriedman.net. It's richardfriedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N dot And I'll try to get your topic in an upcoming episode. One of my biggest fans in England wants to know why I haven't done a feature on Greta Thunberg. It's a good question. I'll be sure to name her a climate hero soon. Until next time, I say goodnight to you and goodnight, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been a breath of fresh earth. Thanks for listening.